Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. In attacking these British officers on the streets of Boston with a sword and pistols and coming close to possibly killing them, uh, he might have set off the war. That's author and Journal of the American Revolution contributor J.L. Bell discussing part two of his two-article series on Samuel Dyer. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today is the second of our two-part series of the life of patriot Samuel Dyer. Author and historian J.L. Bell has given us a wonderful series of articles at the Journal of the American Revolution on this very topic. And if you haven't listened to part one last week, please check it out. It'll give you a full and complete story of a very interesting life. As for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy part two of our interview with historian J.L. Bell. J.L. Bell, welcome back. Thank you. John, give us a brief discussion about what drew you to Samuel Dyer. Well, the name Samuel Dyer just kept showing up in sources that I was looking at from late 1774 and early 1775, when the Revolutionary War broke out in Massachusetts. And yet it was hard to put the to connect these dots, to put these together into a coherent picture, uh, was it even the same person, I was thinking, because, in fact, I found other men named Samuel Dyer. Uh, but uh, once I uh, was able to string all these documents together, documents in, in the National Archives in London, documents in, the, in General Thomas Gage's papers, which are now in Ann Arbor, documents uh, here in the Massachusetts Historical Society in Boston, and uh, some uh, newspaper uh, stories about him, uh, putting those all together, came out with a man who, uh, well, with a life story, which strings along, it's obviously the same person, uh, coherency, uh, uh, rationality, maybe not, but it is the same person, and it's quite interesting to both as a, you know, just an exercise in putting together historical sources, but also looking at what one person could do in this very volatile situation uh, in those months leading up to the war. What did you hope to accomplish with this series of articles? Well, I have to admit that I think that this is just a very interesting story in itself, and it's an interesting piece of detective work, and so that in itself is enough to keep me going. But I also have to, you know, talk about the high-minded ideals of history and what it tells us about the human condition and how you know, contingency might, things might have changed. And in fact, this is a moment when the American war for independence might have started in a very different fashion, because Samuel Dyer, as I discussed in the first article, 
uh, went uh, out and attacked two British army officers on the streets of Boston in October 1774 as revenge, he said, for ha- uh, for other another officer having kidnapped him and uh, shanghaied him to London in order to uh, say false things about the Boston Tea Party, he said. Uh, and if that if he had been successful it would have been very difficult for the royal governor of massachusetts general thomas gage to ignore that and it would have been very difficult for the patriots of boston to have distanced themselves from him uh because that's what they very quickly decided they should do once they heard his story well once after they had heard his story then he attacked the officers after that they thought this man is crazy and uh, sent him into the Boston jail. And that's where the first article left us. Why was Thomas Gage so troubled by Dyer's actions? Well, the public uh, uh, stance of Gage uh, when Samuel Dyer returned to Boston in in mid-October 1774 and started making these complaints is that, oh yes, he would certainly investigate them. And then after he attacked the officers, well, of course, Gage, you know, as a good general, as a good governor, he would not want uh, that sort of crime taking place. He was, you know, grateful that the officers had escaped with, uh, in the case of Colonel Samuel Cleveland, injuries, but nothing uh, life-threatening. Uh, and uh, Dyer was locked up in the Boston jail. So it looked like, you know, the law was going to take its course. They had found this dangerous madman. In fact, Gage secretly knew that. Uh, a one of another of his officers, Lieutenant Colonel Madison of the Fourth Regiment, had uh, locked up, uh, had in fact grabbed Dyer and locked him up in the army camp back in the summer for supposedly inveigling soldiers to desert. Gage had in fact consulted with uh, a top loyalist lawyer and judge on this process. They had determined to send uh, Dyer back to or uh, to England. Uh, on the flagship of the admiral in charge of the North Atlantic Fleet at that time, Admiral John Montague. Uh, and so when Dyer came back and suddenly made himself much more visible, to Gage, uh, he had this public front, of, uh, and then he had these secrets. What was described in attorney Ockmoody's bill? Uh, yes, Ockmoody was the loyalist attorney and judge I just mentioned. And uh, in this uh, a, a four or five page uh, list of legal tasks he did for General Gage and was billing the government for, and he uh, said at the bottom that he had received nothing so far, uh, he, one of the things he mentioned uh, was to draft of an information against Samuel Dyer for seducing James Little and Andrew Hughes private soldiers of His Majesty's 4th Regiment to desert, and a special warrant that he uh, attended three times at the province house, that was General Gage's official headquarters, uh, to consult upon this affair uh, and hearing complaints. So obviously, Akhmati and Gage had had at least three uh, serious conversations about uh, Samuel Dyer. This is the uh, the sort of smoking gun in General Gage's papers, which shows how clearly he was involved in figuring out what to do with Samuel Dyer when he first came to uh, the Army's attention, supposedly for uh, trying to uh, convince soldiers to desert their posts. Um, 
there's also a hint that possibly after being grabbed for this, uh, Samuel Dyer began to hint, uh, began to tell uh, the officers who are, who, are, who are holding him that he might have information about the Boston Tea Party, which Gage very much wanted to send to London, and uh, that's probably uh, one reason why he shipped uh, Dyer off on Admiral Montague's ship was uh, because he thought that this man would have uh, information that would blow the lid off the Patriot conspiracy to destroy the tea. That's not in the attorney's bill, but the attorney's bill tells us, confirms for us in real time, that Gage was uh, involved in the kidnapping of Samuel Dyer, if, if we want to call it that, from the very beginning. How did Lord Dartmouth see this matter? Well, after uh, a few weeks, the uh, the ship, Admiral Montague's ship, arrived at uh, at London, and uh, shortly before it came to England, Montague sat down with Dyer and extracted from him and from another sailor depositions uh, talking about how uh, the Tea Party had been planned, how men like Samuel Adams. John Hancock, Dr. Thomas Young, top leaders of the Boston Patriots, how they had been uh, conspiring to uh, to destroy the tea, to inveigle soldiers into deserting, and other crimes against the crown. And this was all written up in a long deposition, which Admiral Montague then had Gage sign his uh, his mark to his initials, and sent it off to uh, Lord Dartmouth, the Secretary of State for North America. Once it got to Lord Dartmouth's office, the undersecretaries of state took one look at this and said, we don't want anything to do with this. <laughs> this man is is very unreliable. These stories don't make sense, and indeed they do. They don't. Um, uh, there was uh, there's this flurry of memos in the National Archives between the Secretary of State's office, the Admiralty office, and the Treasurer's office, all trying to, uh, you know, put this headache on somebody else's desk for a, a few days. And uh, the attorney general of the British Empire uh, is consulted on it and says that uh, nothing that Dyer has to say, nothing in his, in his deposition can be actually used to prosecute anybody. It's all hearsay, and it's uh, uh, a grave mistake for General Gage to send this, uh, this man here. And so uh, in the end, uh, it looks like they just uh, the admiral lets Dyer off, but not before he sends another letter. Uh, and this time, instead of signing it with a mark as if he was unable to sign his own name, this is signed with his own name. So he was uh, concealing that that ability from uh, the admiral. But he sent off a letter to uh, Lord Dartmouth asking for protection because he says in this letter that he has been uh, helpful to the crown. He has been providing information on the tea party and the other sailors on this ship, some of whom are Americans uh, are now suspicious of him and he is unsafe. So he needs protection from the crown. So this document also gets into Lord Dartmouth's files and it is just another headache. And they decide to wash his office decided to wash their hands of uh, Dyer and uh, let him, let him off on his own, throw him back in the water, uh, he, as a sailor, uh, is let loose in London. And this is at the moment when he, uh, when Dyer 
went to some of the top Whigs in London, some of the people who were most sympathetic to the American cause, and told a story there of having been kidnapped and interrogated about the Boston Tea Party. And he told uh, those Whigs, and they wrote in their letters back to their American colleagues, that he had resisted all interrogation. And he, they, they had, the, the, Officers in Boston and on the ship had tried to make him accuse certain Boston patriots, and he had adamantly refused. And in fact, we have this other document that Admiral Montague arranged, where he accused several Boston patriots by name, including some of the, one of the men who actually welcomed him back into America in October. So uh, at this point, Dyer seems to have switched sides two or three times. Why did Gage ultimately decide to act cautiously on this issue? Well, in the other things that were happening in Boston at this time, Gage was very aware that the countryside around Massachusetts was no longer in his control. He did not have the power to subdue the countryside anymore with the number of troops he had. Basically, he uh, could only control Boston itself. And so uh, his thought when he saw the, uh, what was going on with uh, Dyer was to um, put the man in jail, not prosecute him immediately because uh, the courts weren't working, uh, not try to uh, get more out of him, sort of to tamp down everything. If the Whigs in Massachusetts, if the Patriots, as they were now calling themselves, were satisfied that this man was crazy and that his story, nothing about it would was true, then uh, from Gage's perspective, that was the best possible situation. Let it all lie, because uh, it would be much worse if the locals had any inkling that, in fact, Dyer was largely telling the truth. Talk about Dyer's time in jail. As I said, the the Massachusetts Patriots, one of their uh, strategies at this point was to close the courts, not to allow any court proceedings to happen under the new Massachusetts Government Act as a way to protest the illegitimacy of that law. And so, whereas in most cases, um, or in normal times, criminal trials uh, came on within a couple of months of somebody being arrested, Dyer was still in the Boston jail uh, in April 1775 when the Revolutionary War began, even though he had been put in jail back in October. Uh, And uh, then in uh, June came the Battle of Bunker Hill, and after that, the British authorities uh, locked up uh, a few uh, people they thought, uh, patriots they thought were especially dangerous, um, among them uh, a school teachers named John Lovell and John Leach, and a printer's son named Peter Eads. And Eads and John Leach kept diaries of their time in jail as a way to document what they saw as horrible treatment. And part of the horrible treatment was that the officials in in charge of the jail, the new sheriff uh, who was loyalist, the uh, provost, who was a a loyalist from New York, and the provost trustee among the the, uh, people in the jail, Uh, were mistreating them. And the trustee was Samuel Dyer. He had switched sides again and was now totally uh, adhering to the uh, loyalist and royal cause and, in fact, helping to bother or mistreat uh, the uh, patriot prisoners. 
we see him pop up uh, in several uh, entries of the uh, diary of Eads and Leach uh, until finally, uh, after they're complaining, they, those men complained about him, the General Gage has, he, has Dyer brought to trial. He was acquitted. Uh, we don't have records of this trial because it's all impromptu under British military rule. Uh, and then supposedly let go, although he still is around the jail for another week, according to the diaries. And then finally he disappears. And uh, this is uh, this is the last so far that I've found about this particular Samuel Dyer. You mentioned that he had shifting allegiances. Explain how that pattern emerged. It is a tough one because uh, I'm I'm tempted to say, well, we don't have his own words. But in fact, we do have his own words. We have this deposition he gave to Admiral Montague uh, saying how these patriots have all been uh, uh, doing these horrible things. And then another uh, letter, which is even more clearly in his own words, uh, asking for protection from Lord Dartmouth. And yet we also have the news reports and letters rep- uh, based on the stories he was telling about how the British army had mistreated him and how he had not told uh, them who about the patriots uh, doing crimes. So the sources we have from him are very contradictory, very hard to figure out, hard to reconcile. And I keep coming back to the fact that uh, both sides ultimately are convinced that the man was not rational, that he was uh, insane in some way, that he could not be trusted to tell the truth, to know what the truth was, to be reliable uh, from one week to the next. And I think that, in fact, that I mean, he was obviously indeed mistreated. He was obviously, uh, in his mind, quite possibly betrayed by both sides. Um, but a lot of the blame, I think, rests on him not being reliable. And it is one of the hardest things you know, figuring out from a, his, uh, from a historical point of view, because we want uh, historical actors to be rational in some way. We want to know what they want. Uh, We want to know what they know at a given time, and we want what they want and what they know to line up with what their actions are. And Samuel Dyer doesn't fit that pattern because he seems to shift his allegiance. He seems to shift what he says, uh, what he claims is the truth, depending on who is in power over him at any given moment. And if he sees more opportunity or sees more necessity in uh, telling the admiral that you know, Dr. Thomas Young has been uh, inveigling British soldiers to desert, or telling uh, uh, the Newport Whigs that uh, um, that Lord North himself was interrogating him in London. Well, that's what Samuel Dyer will do. He will tell uh, these clearly uh, false things uh, in order to please whoever he's talking with at that moment. What ultimately happens to Dyer? That's right. Uh, he after he is gone from the diaries, the jailhouse diaries of Eads and Leach, uh, I have not been able to find him again. And it's uh, somewhat complicated by the fact that there are other men named Samuel Dyer in New England. Uh, it's a big place, uh, and there are lots of men named Samuel. I'll say that. Uh, and uh, so I 
for a moment, I thought I had tracked him to Exeter, New Hampshire, but no, that's a different uh, Samuel Dyer. I don't know what happened to him. I, the fact that he is a sailor means that he is, uh, one, very mobile. He could be anywhere in the British Empire. And two, he it probably is not leaving a tr- paper trail uh, because uh, sailors tended not to uh, you know, own real estate, leave wills. Um, uh, have uh, business records, things like that. So I think he uh, sort of disappears into the great uh, uh, um, uh, merchant marine of the British Empire, probably never came back to Boston, and uh, I'm keeping my eyes open for the name, but uh, I think that uh, he uh, actually does disappear. John, how does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, one thing about good stories like this is they make us, you know, if they're good, they sort of expand our mind to what people can do, what it is possible for people can do. And uh, Samuel Dyer's going back and forth, the um, the way uh, the same events could be seen very differently from the Patriot side of view, from the London point of view, from General Gage's point of view, as he had more knowledge than anybody else. Uh, That all uh, is just fascinating to to think about the way the individuals were working in this case. And then, as I say, there is this other uh, element of uh, Samuel Dyer's story, which is that he, in attacking these British officers on the streets of Boston with a sword and pistols and coming close to possibly killing them, uh, he might have set off the war. It might have been a very different beginning to the American Revolution. And uh, the story that the patriots were uh, of Boston or Massachusetts were able to tell to other colonies and to the world at large would have been very different. Thus, if the uh, paperwork uh, that I found and put together in this article uh, uh, came out uh, and was not destroyed, then the British government would eventually have to explain their actions as well. Uh, and so we sort of, um, like Colonel Samuel Cleveland, we dodged a bullet there, uh, that the <laughs> the uh, story of the outbreak of the Revolutionary War, as messy and complex and contingent as it was, well, could have been a lot messier. J.L. Bell, thanks again. Thank you, Brady. Take care. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.